Hi, everybody. Hi. Guys, I have bad news. First service was louder, and there was like a third as many people. I don't blame you, but I am disappointed. <clears throat> um, oh, thank I love you too. You're, that's our sermon for today. I hope you've all enjoyed yourselves. Uh, like, my name is Eric. Um, usually they uh, don't let me out of the youth group room, but uh, occasionally they let the cage up long enough for me to get up here and preach, and so uh, you guys get me today. And uh, I'm just really excited to be up here. Um, uh, some of you know that I hold the record at TCC for shortest sermon of 27 minutes, so today I will be uh, aiming for the other record of longest sermon. <laughs> Is he serious? I don't know. Uh, no, I'm not. Um, but I am very excited to be here with you guys today. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Esther chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, uh, turn on your phones and Google Esther chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a phone or a Bible, there is a Bible at the end of your row. Uh, someone will be happy to pass that to you, and the book is about here. So if you make your Bible look like this, uh, open up to the exact middle, open it, you'll even the Psalms go to the left, and you'll eventually end up in Esther. Um, it's a smaller book, so it's kind of easy to miss, but we're going to be in Esther chapter 8, um, starting in verse 1. So make sure you head there, and we're going to read God's Word together and... Um, It's going to be awesome. Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, this is God's word, and it says this. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther to the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the center of it all. I'm really grateful for that. I'm really thankful that uh, sermons are not about Eric, they're not about whoever's preaching. Uh, they are ultimately from you, for you, and by your grace through you. And so, um, as we are here today, I pray that there is just so little Eric. I pray that people wouldn't even remember who shared this sermon today, but they would instead walking away. They would instead walk away, saying how good God is. God, I'm thankful for this passage. I'm thankful for these people. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for my Savior who loves me. Thank you for this time that we get to have together. Open our eyes to your scriptures that we might know you better and love others better. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, what I think is important that we're going to start off this morning not with scripture so much, but with some really basic science, which I know is everyone's favorite. So here's a scientific fact for you. Baseball is the best sport, and if you disagree with me, you're wrong. Um. Our youth group has given me several arguments as in opposition to this, saying it is boring, it is not interesting, it is overrated, you don't have to be an athlete to play it, and I have a counterpoint to all of those. No. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, it's interesting, uh, baseball as a sport. It's the only sport where you can be successful one-third of the time and still make the Hall of Fame. 
Uh, it's also the only sport, in my mind, where you definitely have to be both smart and good at it uh, to be very successful. And it's also one of the, it's only the, the only major American sport that doesn't have a clock. So you can't run up the score on your opponent and then, you know, run out the last 10 minutes of the game. Uh, everyone gets their fair shot. Every single person gets a chance to play the game until the game is over, which I find very interesting because it can lead to some very dramatic moments. Um, <clears throat> many of you have prayed for me because I am a fan of the Baltimore Orioles, and I thank you for that. Uh, what that means is I've spent most of my life being sad. Um, <laughs> from 1998 to 2011, they, didn't, they never had one season where they won more games than they lost. Um, so we, re we refer to those as the dark years. Um, but suddenly in 2012, they were not only watchable, they were actually really good, and they made the playoffs in 2012. It was a very strange team because there, wasn't, there was like three or four people that were good, and then a lot of people who were like better than they should have been. Um, <clears throat> it was just kind of a really magical year. And there are a lot of popular names that came along that year. Um, names, if you follow baseball, you might have heard names like Chris Tillman, Adam Jones, stuff like that. Really popular players who are actually good at their jobs. There was one player who you will not remember because his name is Taylor Teagarden. Exactly. Taylor Teagarden um, is by every metric what you might call uh, substandard. You might say he is uh, average at best. And some of you might just say Taylor Teagarden is bad at baseball. Um, Taylor Teagarden, his, his career statistics, if you look at all of it, he was at best a replacement level hitter, like, which means that they could have got, gotten some guy like, who wasn't even a professional, who's in the minor leagues, brought him up, and they would have performed just about as well as this guy named Taylor Teagarden. Um, he hit about 20% of um, in his at-bats over his career. The guy is not a professional anymore. He hasn't been in the majors for three years. Um, he was, over his career, uh, not great. However, Orioles magic, feel it happen. Um, in a shocking reversal, in this beautiful sport of baseball, in these games that last for, doesn't matter how long, um, <clears throat> statistics will never show you these dramatic turns of events. And they don't account for these things, but they are beautiful moments. I want to show you what is probably the highlight of Taylor Teagarden's career, and one of the highlights of the 2012 Orioles in a complete reversal of fortune. Neither team has a position player. 13th Andy inning, four hours of game, and boom. Teagarden, deep right field. Taylor Teagarden in his second at bat of the season. You can, play, you can cheer for that. It was awesome. The Orioles with a there you go. It was amazing. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And um, there he is. The Tea Garden. Uh, Taylor Tea Garden would never accomplish more than that moment <laughs> in what came to be dubbed Tea for Two. Um, but in that brief, beautiful moment, there was an incredible reversal of his fortunes that made that season really magical for the Orioles. And there are lots of uh, really incredible reversals in pop culture, in the world, in history. Um, even in our world today, we see lots of reversals. Sports being a really big example. Um, twist endings in movies, movies is a really uh, popular example of a reversal of something. Or how um, artists in uh, music or whatever can uh, reinvent themselves. My favorite reversal is um, an artist named Kid Rock. Uh, some of you are familiar with him. And he kind of reversed himself into being like this grungy hip-hop artist in the 80s to being something of an elder statesman. And uh, sings about patriotic stuff all the time now. And it's very strange, but I'm really thankful for him. Um, but I think that's why our, um, our culture is so interested in seeing these moments where uh, victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat. Um, in these moments where why, why we all love a Cinderella story, right? The beauty of reversals is something that resonates and speaks to each and every one of us. There's something unique about universals when the unexpected becomes reality. And it's a moment where despair turns into joy, where pain becomes triumph and loss morphs into victory. We've been in Esther for a couple of months now. I'll, to give you guys a 
brief recap, just so you know where we are. Uh, Esther is a Jewish woman who, because of the chauvinism of King Ahasuerus, who is the king of the empire of Persia, has been made into queen because, for no other reason than that she is beautiful. The king's second in command is a man named Haman, who made a decree with the king's permission that essentially guarantees the genocide of the Jewish people in the Persian empire, which Esther finds out about. Esther has an older cousin turned to a father figure named Mordecai, who, after he completely freaks out, says the famous words to Esther. He says, perhaps you have been chosen for a time such as this, indicating that maybe God is actually in the position she's in, not by chance, but by God's providence. Haman actually ends up trying to get Mordecai executed by building a 75-foot-tall spike called a gallows to impale him on and also tries to get himself exalted by uh, the king. The king finds out Mordecai actually once saved his life, and he decides to exalt Mordecai instead and makes Haman the guy responsible for overseeing the exaltation of Mordecai. Uh, Esther, uh, at a feast, finally reveals to the king that Haman has been plotting to kill Mordecai and Esther and all of the Jews, and the the king just completely freaks out, and um, in a moment of uh, rare self-control for him, says, I need a moment to myself, and leaves. Um, What happens then is that Haman starts groveling and begging for his life. Esther says, I'm done with you, goes to sit on a couch because I'm not interested in dealing with groveling Haman. Haman's not quite done, so he's begging for his life so hard that he ends up tripping, falling on top of Esther while begging for his life. At the exact moment, the king comes in, says, hey, are you assaulting my wife? And he's like, no, And but he, the king doesn't really matter and goes back to not being able to control himself and makes sure that Haman is actually impaled and killed on the same gallows that was once made for Mordecai. It's been a lot. It's been a few. It's been a couple of months. Let me tell you what. Um, it's been a really interesting story to this point. But what we see is that God, the enemy of God's people, God's people's biggest enemy, Haman, has been removed from the scene. But there's a problem: is that the law of edict, the edict law of death for Jews, still stands. So there's still a problem. But what we're going to see in Esther chapter eight is that God is a God of reversals. We do, even now, live in a world where hate, rage, racism, chauvinism, and genocide exist because sin has worked its way into all of our hearts and all the hearts of all people. But God is a God who doesn't just make things better. God is a God who makes all things new. He doesn't make things better. He makes things new. And our God is the God who redeems. And in this chapter, God shows us three great reversals that we're going to talk about together. Reversal number one, God turns poverty into riches. God turns poverty into riches. A couple weeks ago, there was a news article that was making headlines about a prisoner in Iowa who was attempting to get his um, release from prison while serving a death sentence. He was serving his death sentence, and then in 2015, he had a medical episode which resulted in his heart stopping. Um, And so he was dead for about six to seven seconds before being resuscitated. And uh, he filed an appeal with the court system and said, uh, I died. Ah, Some of you see where I'm going with this. Um, He said, I. I did my life sentence. I'm on life number two. I'd like to be free, please. He probably didn't say it like that, but I'm paraphrasing. Um, So I thought that was super interesting. The guy is trying to do this thing that's like this very odd circumstance. And um, his appeal was ended up being denied by the court. And the court simply said, he's either still alive, in which case he must remain in prison, or he's actually dead, in which case the appeal is moot. And I was like, yeah. Um, But regardless of the outcome, I think this inmate demonstrates to us the unique appeal of turning death into life, of seeing a death sentence reversed into a life sentence. At the beginning of chapter 8, we encounter Mordecai. This is the same Mordecai who three chapters ago was uh, covered in uh, dirt, in the streets wailing and mourning about his own impending death. He was faced with doom. He was desperate. And look at this dude now. Verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman 
the enemy of the Jews. This was a pretty common thing at the time. It was known that if uh, <clears throat> the king ordered the execution of one of his officials, the king got all of his stuff, and the king could do whatever he wanted with it. So in this case, the king gives it to his queen. Mordecai came before the king, and Esther had told him what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had given from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Mordecai and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So, King Ahasuerus has taken Haman's house, given it to the queen. This is the same Haman who was trying to wipe out all Jewish people. And now his house was given to a Jewish queen who gave it to another Jewish relative who now gets his job and his house and all of his stuff. Authority, the, the signet ring, is a sign of authority. It, it's uh, the way that we've talked about it is that you would uh, pour the wax on like an envelope, you'd stamp it with the ring, seal the king, you have all the authority that the king has. So the people that uh, Haman was trying to wipe out now have all of the authority and power and home and stuff that he once had. In just a few days, Mordecai went from being broke, broken man, covered in dirt, covered in a sack, weeping about his death, to being the second most powerful person in the kingdom, vested with an unbelievable place to live, and the authority and power of the king with a stepdaughter who is the queen. That is an incredible reversal. Only God can do that. Uh, if you're a fan of the Marvel movies, as I am, uh, I, I do think they're a little bit formulaic, so I'm not saying they're perfect, but there's always that moment when you're like, oh yeah, it's about to go down, right? Like it's always the moment where like Thor picks up his hammer or his axe or like Bruce Banner turns into the Hulk or Iron Man's like, I've got this new suit. I bought this new superpower. Um, but basically there's that moment when the powerless becomes the powerful, right? There's that moment where the have not becomes the have and the entire landscape shifts and the story changes. In this passage, we're seeing how God is providentially caring for his people. We've mentioned a couple times over the last few weeks, this is the only book in the Bible that doesn't, God, that doesn't mention God specifically by name, but it does have God's fingerprints all over it. The way that it was explained to me in a class was a professor said, this is a showing of how God, even though he's not directly dwelling with his people, he is providentially working in and for them. And God still cares for his people even when he's not bodily with them. God has orchestrated this whole situation for this very moment. I'm going to read something. Um, it's not be, I'm not looking at you because I don't like you. It's because I have to read things. Um, <laughs> I, so I was kind of thinking through how God is providentially taking care of his people. And um, <clears throat> the sequence of events is kind of amazing. And I didn't even go through all of them because uh, I was sleepy, basically. But um, I want you to see how this whole thing happened because you can only say God did that. God created Esther to be physically beautiful in order that she might grow up to be attractive, in order that she might be chosen by a shallow king, in order that Mordecai might be able to get close to the palace without getting in trouble, in order that he might save the king's life by discovering a plot, in order that his name would get written in the chronicles for the king, in order that Haman might get mad at Mordecai, in order that Haman would, go, would set out this genocidal edict, in order that Mordecai would ask his stepdaughter to help, in order that she would throw a feast for Haman and the king, in order that Haman would get too chummy and prideful, in order that he would think that the king was going to honor him and so gave him advice on how to honor someone while also planning on hanging, on hanging Mordecai in order that the king would instead honor and exalt Mordecai in order that Esther would have the nerve to reveal Haman's plot in order that the king would get so angry that he would need to leave the room, in order that Haman would beg for his life so hard he'd trip and fall on Esther, in order that the king would come in and assume Haman was assaulting Esther, in order that Haman would be hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai, in order that Mordecai would receive everything that once belonged to Haman. Guys, if you don't believe that God is active and has a, has a plan, there's nothing else to believe in. The theological term we use for this is sovereignty, right? God is in charge. There's nothing that God looks at and can't say that's mine. God's got it all in his 
hand. And God had an idea of, uh, or Mordecai had an idea of what God's story was going to be. It was one that um, he thought was going to be death, and he gave into hopelessness. But he learns in this chapter that our God does not delight in our spiritual poverty, but in the riches of his grace. I do want to be careful here. Uh, I'm not saying God is desiring for you for to be for you to be healthy and wealthy for all time. That's not my goal. Um, you will not be rich because you believe in God. Uh, you will get sick no matter what your faith is, and no matter what you believe, you are going to experience difficulty in this world. And in fact, uh, Jesus promised that to all believers in in John chapter 16 when he says, "In this world, you will have tribulation." It's not saying maybe you'll run into difficulties. It's guaranteeing that you will. We will have marital struggles. We will have hard times in school. We won't get along with our spouse or our friends or our parents. Our kids will rebel against us. You will get sick. And the life that we have in this world might not end great. But the key to this isn't that the death guarantee is made, but there's a promise of joy Because Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. The world that says all of these terrible things that hurts us is nothing compared to the God who has overcome it. What the life of Mordecai demonstrates for us is not that the believing in God will result in um, victory over our enemies. What it tells us is that when God intervenes, he turns death into life. Mordecai was a dead man walking, and now he's the second most powerful person in the world. A few weeks back in youth group, we were watching uh, an evangelism video where this guy kind of walked up to a student and said, hey, do you think uh, you believe in God? And the guy was like, yeah. He's like, okay, uh, do you think you're going to go to heaven? The guy was like, hmm, probably. He's like, all right, well, Uh, let's take a look at what God says is, you know, how you need to behave to be a good person. So we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, right? Have you ever lied? I was like, "Mm, yeah. That's a tough one to answer, right? You either say yes, and you admit that you're a liar, or you say no, and you're a liar. (laughs) But he says, have you ever lied? The guy says, yeah. He says, have you ever wanted something that's not yours? The guy says, yeah. Have you ever looked at a person with lustful intent? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever not observed the Sabbath? Have you ever worshipped something that wasn't the God of the Bible? Have you ever not honored your parents? Have you ever uh, dropped an OMG kind of carelessly into a text message conversation? Have you ever hated someone? And it occurs to this guy, and it occurred to me, and maybe it's occurring to you right now in your seats, that uh, all of a sudden, this good person that we think we are is actually a lying, stealing, covetous, idolatrous, murdering, blasphemer. And Romans 6.23 is very clear that the wages of sin is death. Death is not natural, or death is not simply natural, it is earned. The death of our bodies, absolutely, but the death of our souls even more. There's not a drop of us that has earned a slice of heaven. Jonathan Edwards was a theologian in the 1700s who said it like this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Thankfully, Romans 6.23 does not end with death, and just like Mordecai's story, and the story of all of God's people, does not end in death. Because the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Talk about God reversing poverty into riches. That is the truth we all have in Christ. Mordecai saw a glorious truth that was lived out in his own life. Once the victim, he was now gifted with the power to do whatever whatever he wants. God does that in our lives too. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says very clearly, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. We were dead people, spiritually dead people. We were not born alive to God. The question we always ask is, what do dead people do? And the answer is, nothing. Dead people don't do anything. They are dead. The only way that a dead person does something is if someone who is alive does something to the dead person to make them not dead anymore. 
This is what God does with dead people. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not the result of work, so that no one may boast. Guys, I know a lot of people in this room grew up in church or are even right now growing up in church. I did not, so my experience is a little bit different from yours. And I know that there is, a, um, for a lot of people, a coming to the truth over time as God reveals more and more things to you. But listen, you don't grow into becoming a Christian. There is a choice that must be made of, I am going to follow Jesus. And Jesus is my life. If you have not made that choice, I want you to consider that maybe today is the day. This church is full of people who really love Jesus and really want to love you. And if you haven't made the choice to say that today is the day to follow Jesus, or haven't made the choice to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, I want to invite you. Um, once, uh, once the sermon's over, I'll be up front. There are tons of people around the room. You could probably even turn to the person next to you and say, I'm ready to follow Jesus, and we'll talk to you and pray with you through that. We can recognize, as Mordecai did, that God is the God who takes death and turns it into life, who takes our poverty and turns it into the riches of his glorious grace. Only God can do that. God turns poverty into riches. Reversal number two. God turns meekness into boldness. God turns meekness into boldness. I'm going to turn away from the light topic we've been discussing for a few minutes and go to something a little bit heavier. Uh, Raise your hand if you think it is currently too early to start listening to Christmas music. Okay. I see those hands. All right. Put your hands down. Raise your hand if you know better. Amen. Amen. So uh, I started listening to Christmas music about six years ago, (laughs) and I haven't really felt the need to stop ever since. Um, Now, lots of people have different favorite Christmas things, traditions, movies, and stuff like that, and I really enjoy Christmas music, and uh, my favorite Christmas song actually depends on whatever song is currently playing, Um, but there are a few that always seem to stand out to me, and there's one that I really love called Come and Stand Amazed. Uh, by a band called Citizens and Saints. And uh, I found out mm, sometime when I was preparing this that it's actually based on a medieval Dutch carol. <laughs> I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, that was really interesting to me. You guys don't have to care. But it, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it was translated and uh, arranged in English in 2013, uh, but one of the things that it does is it kind of highlights the seeming paradoxes of the Christian faith, um, but by paradoxes, I think really what it does is it highlights some of the reversals that God does in us, through us, uh, and for us, and it says these words, see the mighty, weak, and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor, see the fullness destitute. I don't want us to lose track of the fact that in order to secure a future where God reverses sin, God had had to reverse himself. This God who is supremely worthy of all glory, honor, and praise, who is entirely perfect, justly receiving and deserving of all the praise and worship of heaven, gave up everything he had to become a person like you and me. What would you give up to become you? I wouldn't give up much. God gave up everything to become one of us. And as a man, during one of his most importance of teaching on his time on earth, Jesus shared with us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, before we go any further, I would like to kind of put a definition out there for the word meek. It's not a super uh, valuable um, thing in our current society. It's not one of those things like you go into a performance review at work, and they're like, dude, you are super meek. 
20% raise. Could be nice. Um, but uh, it's just not a popular word that we use very much anymore. And um, I was looking at it. The, the Greek word for meek denotes humility and a sense of gentleness. It's been described as the restraining of self. Esther, throughout this book, has exhibited meekness. She has never tried once to find a way to murder Haman, though she is queen. She recognizes her own weakness and accepts her limitations to the point where she says, if I perish, I perish. Esther recognizes she needs the king's help to fulfill her goal. And what happens? Her faith is rewarded. Look at me with... Look at uh, verse 3 with me, if you will. It says, Then Esther spoke to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot he had devised against the Jews. For a person to fall at someone's feet and weeping, that is not the position you'd expect to find someone who has power to be in. There is no powering Overpowering, domineering, or coercing in Esther at all, she recognizes her need for mercy, and despite being queen, she humbly asks for help from the king. Right? And look at the way that she talks to uh, the king in verse uh, 5. She says, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. And she goes on in verse 6 to say, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my people? Listen, Esther is queen. She is the most powerful woman in the world at the time. Beyonce ain't got nothing on Esther. Like, she is rich, she is powerful, and though she is definitely buttering up the king, she throws herself at his mercy and says, King you got to do something. She never once says, I'm too good for this. She never says, I deserve better than this. She never says, this is below me. And she never considers, how will I look? Esther is so focused on the goal in this moment that she dies to herself in order to bring life to her people. One commentator says, salvation for herself was not enough if it came without the salvation of her people. That same sentiment rang true hundreds of years later when another faithful person of God, Paul, wrote a letter to a group of believers in Philippi who were dealing with all kinds of stuff in the early days of Christianity. And Paul reminds them, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul and Esther share a singular focus that results in meekness. In focusing on the goal, they lose track of themselves. This loss of self, this shift from being me-focused to me-forgetfulness creates the spirit of gentleness, restraint, humility, and meekness that God has designed for his people. And then he goes on in verse 8 to, um, <clears throat> in verse 8 of chapter 8 of Esther, um, the king says this. He says, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. It's got a little bit of a Dr. Seuss ring to it. But, um, but if you compare the text with uh, this, what you just see here and what's going on in chapter three, where Haman signed this law into effect with the signet ring, that same signet ring is the same signet ring that's now going to free the Jewish people. The same thing that sealed the destruction and allowed genocide set the same people free. Jesus, who was meek and mild, died, and he reversed the curse of, of sin and death through his meekness, and he gave us power. That is the power that we see on the cross. The same symbol that meant death for Christ means life for us. God reversed sin and death and brought about life and peace because of the meekness of Christ. 
Circling back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus caused all of his followers, all of his people to be meek as he is meek. So we live in a world that is so backwards, full of people calling good things evil and evil things good. There are injustices, there are all kinds of problems, but as we approach these, we can be full of the Holy Spirit, a spirit of meekness with love in our hearts and our eyes set on Christ, knowing that Paul says in Philippians 2 that can ring true in our own hearts, for it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Guys, we're not called to overpower others. We are called to love others. And we can do that in a spirit of meekness and not strength. We are not called to desire power, but meekness. We know that one day God will make all things right, or as uh, the storybook Bible says, it's going to make all sad things come untrue. But guys, church, saints, Jesus has promised us that one day we will inherit the earth. And if that's our guaranteed inheritance one day from a perfect, good, and loving Father, then let us act with gentleness and meekness and love for the current time. Our God turns meekness into boldness. There's one final reversal that we're going to look at. Reversal number three, God turns mourning into joy. Some of you may know this about me, but many of you don't. My undergraduate degree is actually in film and video production. Um, And I remember in one of my classes hearing a lesson that has really stuck with me uh, because I think it applies more to just film, but it actually applies to all of life and specifically the Christian life. He said, uh, specifically for on screen though, he said, don't say it if you can show it. Right? Don't say it if you can show it. So we'd apply that to our lives. Like if I'm going to, I can, sh- I'd re- it's more important that I show you that I love you than I say that I love you. In the film world, people tend to overuse dialogue, and you've probably seen a few TV shows or movies where you're like, wow, they really need to stop talking. Um, but some of the most successful films are people who can show, th- are, are films that can show you things without telling you things. And uh, re- in recent memory, one of the most successful times that this happened is uh, in a Pixar film called Up. Uh, Some of you are familiar with it. It is a dear favorite of mine. And um, if you're not familiar with the premise, it's it's the following. There's There's a boy and a girl who made these little kids. The boy, Carl, makes a promise to the girl, Ellie, that when they get older, they're going to go to South America together. Um, They grow up, they get married, um, but as you'd expect, life happens and uh, there is no moving to South America, though they do end up working in the South America exhibit at the local zoo, which is a lot of fun. Um, So... What happens is they go through life together, and then Ellie dies, and then Carl, uh, it's not a spoiler, it's five minutes in, Um, and then Carl is left alone. Uh, Like I said, this all happens within five minutes, and I'm not apologizing for anything. Um, I have the microphone, you don't. So uh, what happens is that Carl then decides to attach a whole bunch of balloons to his house that that picks the, uh, the house up, and he floats down to... South America, and he finds out that he has um, a Boy Scout, actually, who is, like, trying to help him, who ends up on his front porch, and uh, so he's got this Boy Scout with him as he's flying to South America, and they get into this whole big, crazy adventure, and they have, at one point, they have a big argument, and Carl sends Russell away. Russell goes to try to rescue a friend, and Carl's just in his house alone with, it's just him and the memories of his wife, and he's in the state of mourning, and I want to show you what I think is one of the more powerful scenes.
that get anyone else? Oh, oh man. I, if I wasn't so late, I'd, I'd get everyone a minute for that one. Um, what happens in this moment is we see Carl's mourning replaced with joy. This man, Carl, had been struggling with self-condemnation for never taking Ellie on the adventures he thought she wanted. But when he learns the truth, he finds out he gave her the biggest adventure. <laughs> Everyone look at my wife. <laughs> no, uh, eyes up here. One, two, three. One, two, three eyes on me. Does that still work? Um, so what ends up happening is that um, when truth is known, mourning is turned into joy. What happens here is that Carl's reinvigorated. He goes and helps his friend. They get back to wherever they're from. The house stays in South America with Ellie and all of her memories, and then they live happily ever after. Flashback to Esther chapter 8 with me. Haman is removed from the picture. Esther and Mordecai have the power of the kin signet ring, but there's still a problem. This edict is still out there. The edict cannot be reversed, but it can be overcome. Look at verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal studs, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy and to kill and annihilate any armed force for any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. This edict is a one-to-one parallel of the original edict, and the literary structure would not have been lost on any person in the 127 provinces that this went out to. This was meant to completely undo the wickedness that had been done. So the Jews who were in this empire, once on the brink of absolute annihilation, who were legally prohibited from defending themselves, were not only allowed to defend themselves, but are actually now, if they're attacked, are allowed to go after their attacker's family and plunder everything their attacker owned. I don't know about you, but I would not be bothering anyone that has that kind of authority over me. Right? Like, I could attack you, but if I do, you get to attack me and my family and you get all my stuff? We can chill. Right? Clearly, God is in the middle of doing something absolutely incredible and something transformative. He's doing a great reversal. He's using the authority of Esther and now Mordecai to undo all of the wickedness caused by Haman. If we fast forward to the end of chapter 8, look at verse 15, how Mordecai is described. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. That's the difference when God shows up. We all know this world has pain in it. Every single one of us and God knows it better than us. And James, who in the New Testament was one of the early church fathers, says in his letter, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Trials might be short. Trials might be long. Trials might be lifelong. But God has promised they are not forever long. The pain we experience in this life will only shape us into the person who will receive one day from God the crown of life. Suffering is not wasted, and God loves to reverse our mourning into joy for his glory. Mordecai, who was once this dead man walking, is not only flowing with life, but the mere presence of Mordecai now fills the city of Susa with shouting and rejoicing, pulling them out of the confusion that the Bible says overtook the city in chapter 3. God moved in such a way that he took care not simply of Mordecai and changed his mourning into joy, but used Mordecai to give rejoicing to all people. And as you read it, the way it describes Mordecai, it's not just like, hey, Mordecai is now clean and is not wearing a sack, right? This brother's done up right. Right, he is looking 
good. He has moved far beyond like where I shop, which is usually the clearance rack at JCPenney. <clears throat> like that is not where Mordecai is right now. He is getting the nicest clothes. He is looking great. This guy went in a few chapters from having ripped clothes, sackcloth and ash, to royal colorful robes, a crown and a purple robe that is affiliated with the color of royalty. The man who was once mourning and sent his people into a panic now gives his people what verse 17 says. He gives his people light and gladness and joy and honor. Hundreds of years later, the Bible talks about another man who is paraded in front of God's people wearing purple. He would be a man mourning, called a man of sorrows. People would see what was happening to him and they would rejoice. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was marched up a hill, beaten, mocked, rejected, and despised. He was crucified, nailed to a cross, and in doing so, he took the punishment from God for all sins, for all people, for all time, that for whoever would trust in the work that Jesus did would receive forgiveness from their sins. He was buried, he was dead in a tomb for three days, and his friends and family and followers mourned and experienced intense suffering. But on, third, on the third day, what happened? Mourning was turned into joy. God raised Jesus from the dead to show not only are our sins forgiven, but they are defeated in Jesus. Jesus' resurrection shows us that Jesus not only takes our sins away forever, he also makes us alive to God and that whoever believes in him no longer is rejected, but is now welcome as a friend of God now and forevermore. What does that tell us about God, friends? It tells us that the pain and suffering we deal with now is very real. It tells us that in the morning, though, in our morning, not the morning, in our morning, that we experience life, as we mourn, we are justified in our mourning. But our Savior shares it with us. One of my favorite artists is a man named John Mark McMillan, who uh, released a song um, on a day that many of you will probably know as uh, Jesus' King Kanye Day. Um, <clears throat> so it's a little overshadowed. But he wrote a song and he puts it like this in his song. He says, I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers. But a savior who suffers them with me. What other God would suffer with his people? Only the God of the Bible. But it shows us even more that our suffering is passing away and that though we struggle in the night, morning will dawn and Jesus will return. Warren Wiersbe put it like this. He says, most people would associate sorrow with suffering, but Paul saw suffering and sacrifice as a doorway to a deeper joy in Christ. My natural self, I tend to think that uh, joy is a result of suffering minus pain. Right? As I think through the difficulties of life, I want the, uh, the lessons of suffering without the hurt of suffering. That would be pretty joyful. And that's what, not what the Bible says, no. The Bible doesn't say, no, it's not the removal of pain that gives you joy. It's the addition of Jesus. Suffering plus joy. Suffering plus Jesus equals joy. The more Jesus we have, the more joy we will find. We will not avoid suffering. We will not avoid mourning. We will not avoid loss. But in Jesus the mourning we experience will only increase the joy we find in Christ as God turns our mourning into joy. Church, there's nothing really easy about this particular passage of Scripture, and there are difficulties that we didn't really have time to get into. And you'll see that next week, even though this new edict has been issued, there is still so much hate <clears throat> and anger and racism in the Persian Empire that still thousands of people die. Pain will not end until sin is entirely removed. And God has promised that that day is coming. God is a God of reversals. 
In this world, he turns poverty into riches, he turns meekness into strength, and he turns mourning into joy, but that's just for this world, and this world is passing away. And God has promised that something so much better is coming. We will get a new heavens and a new earth, and God will be with us as our own, and we will be his at his own. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, take away every sadness, and all things will be made new. Mother Teresa put it really simply, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth, a life full of the most atrocious tortures on earth, will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. God is still getting ready to do the greatest reversal we'll ever see. And that's a glorious promise for those who are ready to trust him. Let me pray. God, thank you that you suffer with us. But thank you that you rejoice with us too. God, you are the God who makes all things new. You reverse that which was done once to make all things good for your glory. Father, help us to trust you, to grow in you, to know you, and to love you, to worship you as our king. Reverse the sin, reverse the death and the pain that we feel, and help us to know joy comes in the morning. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.